All right, Reformation Sunday is an unusual, we do something a little different on Reformation Sunday. In the past, so far, since I've been here, we've had uh, guest sermons from Martin Luther. Remember that big giant door that was back here that's now in my barn at home? That was up here. We had a visit from John Calvin. We heard a sermon from William Tyndall, great Bible translator. We heard a sermon from John Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides. Last year, I realized that if I continue to pretend to be these famous people, we're only here from guys. So last year, I didn't pretend to be Lilius Trotter, but I did preach a sermon, Learning Lessons from the Life of Faith of the Artist and Missionary Lilius Trotter. And this morning, we get to learn about the life and faithfulness and awesome God of Darlene Dibler. I'm always excited about Reformation Sunday. I'm particularly excited this year because so many people from our church have already read Darlene Dibler's autobiography. And I have spoken to a lot of people who have read the book and I've been so encouraged as to how people have been blessed and had their faith both built up and encouraged in their faith but also challenged in their faith as they read about Darlene's life and her faithfulness and courage. Um, that's the point of, of, of reading about the lives of faithful men and women who have gone before us. Their lives are signposts that point to God, right? And hearing about their lives equips and encourages us to live faithfully today. I think that's the point of Hebrews 11, that by learning and observing other faithful men and women can empower and equip us to live faithfully today. Now, the title for Darlene Dibler's autobiography is taken from Hebrews chapter 11. Then uh, there's a scene towards the end of the book where she explains why she has called the book what she's called it. And so uh, I'm well aware that even though a lot of people have read the book already, the majority of people that are listening to me right now have not read it. I, I understand that. So let me set the scene just a little bit. It's World War II. And at this point in the book, Darlene has been a prisoner of war in a Japanese prison camp for years by this point. Uh, she's there because she basically just because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, or, or she's in the right place at the right time, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, uh, whatever, she's in a difficult place. Uh, she's an American missionary in New Guinea, and she's there serving in the mission field when New Guinea fell to the Japanese army during World War II. And so anyone living there at the time that had a connection with the Allied forces were rounded up and put in POW camps. Um, but now, at this point in the book, towards the end of the book, things have gone from bad to worse. She is now, at this point, been accused, wrongly accused, of being a spy. And she was therefore taken out of the POW camp and put in solitary confinement on death row. And while she was there, she was repeatedly pulled out of her cell and subjected to interrogation and torture as she awaited her execution. So, and what happened in this particular scene, the previous night, a bunch of drunken Japanese soldiers had come to the prison and they were being loud and Darlene was locked up there in her cell in solitary confinement, and she spent the whole night being afraid uh, that they would open up her cell and violently attack her. And so she spent the whole night crying out to the Lord 
for protection. And the Lord did protect her from the soldiers and they left without incident. And now the sun is just beginning to come up and she's emotionally exhausted. She's had a very tense and sleepless night. She's thanking God for her deliverance. And just then, quite out of the blue, she writes that she felt enveloped in a spiritual vacuum. She writes, it felt just like God disappeared. And she panicked. She says she knows she'd never be able to get through these trials without God's sustaining presence. And so she cried out, Lord, where have you gone? And she racked her brain to see if she had maybe any hidden, unconfessed sin in her life that would make the Lord feel distant from her. But she couldn't think of anything like that. And she writes, my prayers and expressions of worship seem to go no higher than the ceiling. Now, I've never been on death row. I've never been in solitary confinement. I've never been subject to torture. But I definitely know what it feels like to be praying and to feel like I'm, I'm just talking to myself here. And here's what happens. Darlene has examined her conscience, determined that there's, there's no unconfessed sin that she's hiding. She reminds herself of the fact that all of her sins are, have been blotted out and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then she prays, and this is what she prays. Lord, I believe all that the Bible says. I do walk by faith and not by sight. Therefore, I do not need to feel that you are near because your word says that you will never leave me or forsake me. Lord, I confirm my faith. I believe. She believed, not based on her circumstances, not based on her feeling, but based on the promises of God in the Holy Scriptures. Did she have evidence? Yes, but not the kind of evidence that you can see with your eyes. And and, and right then, at that moment, she made up her mind to trust God's word no matter how she was feeling, and the Lord brought a verse to her mind. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And she writes this, the evidence of things not seen, evidence not seen, that was what I put my trust in. Not in feelings, not in moments of ecstasy, but in the unchanging person and work of Jesus Christ. And suddenly I realized I was singing There in that cell, I was singing, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest in his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And she writes, I was assured that my faith rested not on my feelings, not on moments of ecstasy, but on the person of my matchless, changeless Savior, in whom is no shadow of turning. More than ever before, I knew that I could ever and always put my trust, my faith, in my gracious Lord. Well, that's where the title of the book comes from. It's an encouragement to each one of us not to base our faith on our circumstances, but to base our faith on our Savior. The trials that Darlene faced are hard for me even to conceive, but her faith was if, if her faith was contingent faith, if her faith was, was to come to God and say, Lord, I will obey you as long as you bless me, then I will obey you. 
Or if her approach to faith was to come and say, Lord, I will trust you as long as I understand what you're up to. Well, then she would have renounced her faith many times over. But she did the opposite. She came to the Lord and said, Lord, I'll obey you. Even when I'm in the worst possible circumstances, I will obey you. And I will trust you even when I have no idea what you're up to. I have no idea why you're allowing what you're allowing. I'll trust you even then. The evidence for her faith wasn't rooted in the things she could see and touch, but in the promises of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Not things we can see with our eyes, but things that we believe by faith. And so I'll read now that passage in Hebrews 11, verses 1, and th- 1 to 3, and then we can pray. Hebrews 11, got to get past all the Pauline epistles to get to Hebrews. If you're in the Pew Bible, I just found it. It's page 974. Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3. says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we're gathered together again at your table. And once again, it's Reformation Sunday. And it's a chance for us to be reminded of our, of our heritage in the faith and to be reminded of faithful men and women who have gone before us. And we're thankful for that. And, and these are good stories. And they're, they're interesting. And, and they're adventurous. And they're exciting. But most importantly, they're faith-building because they point us not to the person but to you, God. And so I pray for each of us, for every person that can hear my voice right now. I pray that we would encounter you, that you would encourage us, and that we would be built up in our faith. Built up in our faith and empowered. Empowered to step forward in faith and to walk the path of obedience with joy. Even in the times when we can't see I pray that we would believe in the evidence not seen. In your name, amen. All right, here's the plan. I'm going to give a brief sketch of Darlene's life. And along the way, as I tell the story of Darlene's life, I'm just going to pull out a few lessons, a few biblical lessons that I learned along the way as I read about her life. If you read the book already, you probably have a different list of things that encouraged you, but I'm just going to highlight a few things that impacted me uh, and that I'm trying to apply to my own life. Darlene's autobiography really only covers eight years of her life. Four of those years were spent on the mission field in New Guinea, in uh, Makassar, uh, which is a a city in an area in New Guinea, She's in the west part of New Guinea, what sometimes was then referred to as Dutch New Guinea. Um, And and so those were her first four years spent in Dutch New Guinea as a missionary. And then the second four years of the book, she spends in a Japanese prison camp during World War II. So Darlene was born uh, in, in a place called Boone, Iowa. And she was raised in a Christian home. She attended 
church with her family, but she was one of those sensitive kids that um, had lots of unanswered questions about God and about the faith, and she was one of those kids with a troubled soul who just didn't know, didn't have assurance, wasn't sure whether or not she was a child of God. She ha uh, some kids are like that. They just have that question hanging over their head. I don't know. I don't know if I believe. I don't know if I'm saved. And so she went, she stayed after class one day and talked to her Sunday school teacher about her doubts. And her Sunday school teacher told her that day, I, th I believe Darlene says she was nine when this interchange happened. I don't think it's recounted in the book, but I, I read some other things and listened to some interviews that she gave and she told this story. So she's nine, she's asking. Her teacher says, Darlene, just do the best you can. That, I heard her speaking about that advice that she got, and she says that wasn't very good, that wasn't very biblical advice. That's, that's good advice like for a volleyball game, right? Just do the best you can. Or for like a history exam. That's not good theology. In fact, that's the opposite I mean, ironically, that's the opposite of what Christianity teaches. The Bible says that our best will never be good enough to earn God's favor. So just do the best you can. It's about the worst thing that you can say to someone who's wondering whether or not they're saved. The right thing to say is that God has done all that needs to be done in order to make us his own. He's done the work. He's done the best he can. And all we need to do is receive that gift by faith. Well, the response that she got at the age of nine from her teacher did not calm her fears, did not, did not settle her soul, did not bring her peace. But about a year later, at the age of 10, she was, this is the age of radio, right? This is a while ago. She's visiting a neighbor. They were listening to a preacher on the radio. Darlene, 10-year-old Darlene, is sitting on the floor, on the rug in the living room of this home. And the preacher just lays out the gospel from the Bible in simple terms. And she, 10-year-old Darlene, gets it. She understands that grace is a gift that cannot be earned but can only be received by faith. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever believes shall not perish but inherit eternal life. She heard it. She got it. The Holy Spirit regenerated her heart and she received it by faith. Shortly thereafter, she's at a missionary conference which was a pretty popular thing back then. Um, they were happening all the time, these missionary conferences where they would bring in missionary, missionaries who were on furlough and they would share with churches and conferences about their experiences. So she's at one of those and she felt like the Lord was just tapping her on the shoulder and indicating to her that he had a special plan for her which included a call to the mission field, to be a missionary. And she responded to that by saying to God, she says, wherever you lead, I'll follow. Wherever you send me, I will go. Well, eventually, we're, we're jumping ahead now, her life crosses paths with a man named Russell Dibler. Russell was a missionary himself, and he was speaking at one of these missionary conferences. He was on furlough from the mission field. And when Russell, Russell was up front looking out, and when Russell looked out and saw Darlene, uh, he felt like right at that moment, even in front of everybody, the Lord just spoke directly to him and said, that's the one for you. You're going to marry that girl, and together you're going to go to the mission field. Now, kind of hilariously, God did not convey that message to Darlene. <laughs> Just Russell. And so if you, if you read the book, you know he, he was relentless in his pursuit 
of Darlene. And Darlene at the time was basically uninterested, uninterested. Um, Russ didn't give up. In fact, Russ went so far as to visit Darlene's parents in Iowa when she wasn't there and she didn't know, and she didn't even hardly know him. And he went and visited her parents and got their permission to marry their daughter. The only contingency was, well, if, if, you're, if you can get her to agree to marry you, <laughs> then you have our blessing. Well, eventually his persistence paid off and uh, he did, in fact, convince Darlene to marry him. When they got married, she was still 19 years old. He was in his early 30s, a little bit older than her. They got married, and they headed off to the mission field. Their first stop on the way before they went directly to the mission field was in Holland. In Holland, they did intensive language training before going to uh, Dutch New Guinea, uh, and, then, and then they were off. Dutch New Guinea now, today, is part of Indonesia. So she, she and Russell in the mission field experienced some of the normal trials that missionaries face when they go to unreached, remote, impoverished people groups, right? Especially back then, that was a hard calling. That was a hard life, right? And so they went through the challenges that m missionaries go through when they put themselves in those circumstances. They had to learn the local language. Even though they had language training, they had to learn the way the local people spoke it. They experienced the same level of poverty as the people that they lived with there. They lived amongst them and liked them. They experienced months-long separations, despite being, being newly married, months-long separations from each other while Russell would travel ahead and make arrangements uh, about where they were going to be living. They had to learn an entirely new and different culture, totally foreign to the way that they uh, were raised. They, they, they were in extremely dangerous transportation situations where they were hiking long, long distances without enough food along with them or when they were canoeing in, in dangerous rivers or, or, or crossing perilous bridges and things like that. Uh, they experienced skin disease. They experienced what they um, informally refer to as jungle rot. Russell had a particularly bad case of jungle rot on his feet. He couldn't walk for a while. They got malaria. They, they were dangerous and poisonous animals that they had to deal with. Uh, they had to build relationships with strangers that they, that they uh, were totally different than them culturally and linguistically. Um, they experienced all those things and more. You can read about it in the book. But they were happy. <laughs> That, I, I just listed a lot of very, very hard things, but if you think that they were begrudging or angry or bitter about that, you'd be wrong. They were very happy serving the Lord together in, in that context. They took joy in, in each other, and they took joy in knowing they were doing the Lord's work. Now, none of that is all that unusual. A lot of missionaries at that time and in those kind of places would have very similar stories to tell. But then came World War II. Now, at first, when World War II started, it felt very far removed from daily life in Makassar. It didn't really affect them that much. Except what happened is that the, the Dutch were part of the Allied side, and the Japanese were part of the Axis side, and so Japan ended up attacking and overwhelming the Dutch soldiers, who were far outnumbered, and the Japanese army took over New Guinea. And eventually what the Japanese army did is they rounded up and arrested all the foreigners who were living there. And Darlene writes that 
they, 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 were, they, they had been rounded up and arrested, but they were put on house arrest, right? So they were all together. And Darlene writes, the days went by and the tension eased and these missionary couples began to settle into the new routine of being under house arrest. We settled into a loose pattern of cooking, eating, Bible study, prayer, gardening, reading, and walking the perimeter of the garden. That doesn't sound that bad, right? It wasn't that bad. But then she writes, One day, I was in the house, and I heard a truck approaching in the distance. It rumbled into our yard, and the soldiers entered the house, and they said, We're taking the men. So she hears that. She runs into her room, grabs a pillowcase, stuffs a Bible, a notebook, a pen, shaving gear, and some clothes for her husband. She runs out to the yard. She's searching for her husband. He's not there. She finds that he's already been loaded onto the truck. He's towards the back of the truck, so she runs up to the tailgate, hands him the pillowcase. Here, these things are for you. Take them. I don't know where you're going. I don't know when we'll see each other again, but here's some stuff for you. The engine of the truck fires up. Her husband, Russell, leans over the tailgate and says, Remember, remember one thing, dear, God said he will never leave us or forsake us. Those are the last words she ever heard from her husband. Never saw him again in this world. Final words from Russ as he's being taken, who knows where, to a prisoner of war camp. Remember this, Darlene. We we have this promise. We have this promise from God, and I want you to hang on to it because I know bad things are about to happen. So remember this, God said he'll never leave us or forsake us. Darlene writes, the truck started with a jerk and disappeared down the road, and I never saw him again. Then she talks about the difficulty of her first night away from Russell and how hard it is to believe, this, is just, this just rings so true and real, how hard it is to believe the promise of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, how hard it is to believe those words when your heart is breaking, right? She writes, Russell said he will never leave us or forsake us, but what now, Lord? Where are you? This was one of those times when I thought the Lord had left me, that he had forsaken me. I was to discover, however, that when I took my eyes off the circumstances that were overwhelming me, over which I had no control, and I looked up, my Lord was always right there, looking down from heaven. Deep in my heart, he whispered, I'm right here. Even when you don't see me, I'm right here. Never for a moment are you out of my sight. And so that's lesson number one for me. Just because we feel like God has forsaken us doesn't make it so. God has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us, and our God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Darlene writes that she turned to the word of God for comfort, and these are the verses that she read that sustained her that first night, that helped her make sense of her circumstance. She walked on, 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 on kind of a Bible trail, or, or, or you could picture it like stepping stones, just stepping from one passage of scripture to another to get across this river of doubt. And so she started in the Psalms. She read, oh, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. And she very appropriately begins with a lament because her heart is breaking. And the Bible understands that our hearts sometimes are breaking. And the Bible speaks to that. And the Bible never says to Christians, when sad things happen, don't be sad. The Bible never says that. It says, be sad. 
Lament. But interpret those sad things in the light of God's promises and truth. Still see God's loving hand in those things. And so she, went, she leapt from, from that psalm to Isaiah, Isaiah 26.3, which says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is everlasting strength. And then she goes from appropriately lamenting to reorienting herself to fixing her eyes on God. And then she jumps to Peter. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. A reminder that God understands our pain. God bears our burdens. Then she leaps over to James. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. A call to prayer in the midst of her affliction. And then finally she leaps to the words of Christ. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. For I am with you always. Which is a call to faith even in the midst of heartbreak. After citing those scriptures, walking that path, she writes this, mounting the steps into his presence, I prayed and he came to me. Right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God was there all the time, of course, he always is. But in order for Darlene to experience that and to take comfort in it, she needed to make a conscious effort to turn to God through prayer and scripture and to trust in his promises. We don't know a lot about her husband Russell's time in the prison camp um, because he didn't survive it and he didn't write a memoir. So we don't know exactly what happened to him. We do know that he was well-loved by all the men there, by their own testimony. We know that he was a faithful witness to Christ while he was there and that he had a servant's heart and served others. Eventually he got sick and died like so many of those POW prisoners. Darlene didn't find out that he had died until three months after he had died. Eventually what happened is that after the men were rounded up and taken, the women were then rounded up and taken to a different prison camp. And the conditions there were awful. Uh, When I read it, I don't know how anybody survived with the lack of food and the lack of sleep and the hard labor, separation from loved ones, torture, all the rest of it, it was just awful. And the man who was the commander of the camp where Darlene was in prison was just a particularly ruthless, hateful, mean-spirited man. He had, had, his story was he had beaten a man to death in his prison previous post as a commander of a men's POW camp and because he had done that he had to be removed from that camp and so they moved him over to be in charge of this woman's camp. Darlene had been a light in that camp. She had nightly devotions in her barracks that she led. She often cared for the women who were sick. Uh, She worked in their place when they couldn't work and the commander of the camp recognized what a positive impact Darlene had on the women and so when Darlene received the news that her husband had died far away from her in a different prison camp the commander of Darlene's camp called her into his office he basically said to her he said look Darlene this is war and even though your husband is dead now you need to continue to be a leader in the prison camp you need to continue to do what you're doing you need to continue to take care of the other prisoners Now, this is a man that would beat the women to the point of 
breaking their bones. He would beat them with his cane if they just looked at him the wrong way. I mean, he was a ruthless, evil man. I mean, there were a number of times when I was reading this book, I bet you felt this way too if you read it, where the way that he was treating these women and beating these women and treating them unjustly, I just found myself wishing for some Old Testament justice, right? I, I would like to see a little eye for an eye here. Darlene Dibler, though, did not take that attitude. She, she possessed an amazing Christ-like capacity to love her enemies. I wanted to see that man hurt. He didn't even do anything to me. I never even met him. I wanted to see him hurt. Not Darlene. And that's the second lesson that I took from this book, is that when we love our enemies, not only is that what's best for our own soul, right? It's good for you. It's good for you to love your enemies. But also, when we love our enemies, we are participating in building God's kingdom. That's one of the ways that we participate in how God is at work in the world, building God's kingdom, is when we love our enemies. That's easy to say, and it's hard to do, and Darlene consistently did this. And so on this particular occasion, here's what happened. Her heart's broken. She just found out she's a widow. She's like 26. She's a widow. Her beloved husband is dead. She's in a prisoner of war camp. She just gets that news. She's standing in front of this hateful man that's been abusing all the women in the camp. And, she's, and, and he's telling her, look, I, I, know, I know your husband's dead, but just press on and keep, keep being a good leader. And Darlene says, Mr. Yamaji, that's his name, Mr. Yamaji, may I have permission to talk to you? He nodded. Mr. Yamaji, I don't sorrow like people who have no hope. I want to tell you about someone of whom you may never have heard. His name is Jesus. He is the son of the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. And then she writes, God opened the most wonderful opportunity to lay the plan of salvation before the Japanese camp commander. And tears started to run down his cheeks. He died for you, Mr. Yamaji. And he puts love in our hearts. He puts love in our hearts even for those who are our enemies. That is why I don't hate you, Mr. Yamaji. Maybe God brought me to this place and this time to tell you that he loves you. All right, well, I'm gonna, let me just jump ahead real quick in our narrative. By the time the war is over, Mr. Yamaji and Darlene Dibler have become friends. They're friends, and at one point, he even saves her life. I'll tell you that story in a minute. But after the war, he's convicted of war crimes for beating that man to death, and he has to serve a prison sentence. Eventually, his sentence is commuted, and finally, he's released from prison. Somewhere along the way, because of Darlene's testimony to him, he became a Christian, and he became a preacher, and he got a radio show. And he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ through that radio show all over Japan. By loving her enemy, Darlene participated in that. One of the more startling and, and graphic episodes in the book happens, I, I mentioned it at the start of this sermon, but it happens when Darlene is accused of espionage. She's taken out of the prison camp and put in solitary confinement on death row. So during that time, while she's on 
death row. She has an active case of malaria and an active case of dysentery. She's freezing cold at night with nothing to cover herself with. She has to sleep on the hard floor or else she finally gets a woven mat that she can sleep on, but that just allows the mosquitoes to attack her from underneath all night. She deals with flies that try to steal her food and rats. She has to survive on half a cup of rice porridge a day, and that porridge is full of worms and stones. At first, she begins trying to pick the worms out before she eats it, but she finds that when she does, it gives the flies too much time to eat it, so she just eats the whole thing as it is each day. And on top of all that, she's routinely taken out of her cell, interrogated, and tortured. And now we come to lesson three. The Lord provides what we need when we need it. That's lesson three that, I, that I'm taking from this book. The Lord provides what we need when we need it. So often in the book, we find Arlene at the end of a rope, and we think, I think, how can anyone endure this? How is anyone getting through this? And yet, over and over again, the Lord provides exactly what she needs when she needs it. So one memorable example, I, I, I could pull any number of examples to, to prove this point, but one memorable one is she's in solitary confinement. She's been awaiting her death for quite some time. It looks like maybe she's going to die of disease and malnutrition and despair before the Japanese soldiers have, have the chance to actually behead her. Uh, she, she, she looks out a tiny slot at the top of her window uh, in her cell, and she can see out of that into the prison yard. She's never released to go out there, but she can see out there. And she, she watches as one of the inmates smuggles a bunch of bananas through the prison fence. So she like, this inmate kind of like backs up to the fence and then gets handed a bunch of bananas through the fence and then puts it in her coat. And Darlene watches the whole thing happen. And as she watches that, it gets her thinking how much she would like to have a banana. <laughs> she hasn't eaten anything decent in a long, long time. She's lost loads of weight. Her hair has turned white. She's in her late 20s. Her legs are swollen from disease, and she just starts to crave a banana. She writes, I began to crave bananas. Everything in me wanted one. I could see them. I could smell them. I could taste them. I got down on my knees, and I prayed, Lord, I'm not asking for a whole bunch of bananas like that woman has. I just want one banana, Lord. Just one banana. And then she thinks about the impossibility of her request. And so she prays again and she says, Lord, there's no one here who can get a banana to me. There's no way for you to do it, Lord. Please don't think I'm ungrateful for the rice porridge. It's just that those bananas looked really delicious. Okay, here's what happens. You know she's getting a banana, right? Here's what happens. Mr. Yamaji comes to visit Darlene on death row in her solitary confinement cell. He comes. The door is going to be open. Now, usually for Darlene, whenever the door opens, that's very bad news. She thinks that she's in trouble. She thinks that she's going to be punished for something. The door opens. She's kind of like bracing. She ha- it's hard for her to stand because her legs are swollen and diseased, but she gets up. She knows she has to bow when, when they open the door. She's ready for discipline. She's ready for a beating. And she sees Mr. Yamaji standing there. And she says, Mr. Yamaji, it's just like seeing an old friend. And he's so touched by that greeting. His eyes fill with tears. He turns and walks away, doesn't say anything. 
I'm guessing he's never been called a friend by anyone before in his life. He, he's so overwhelmed. He walks, he walks to the, he goes and finds, she's watching this happen through her window now. He goes out to the prison yard, finds the two cruel, evil soldiers that have been conducting the interrogations and torturing them. He speaks to them. He's clearly the one in charge speaking down to them. Eventually, a guard comes to her door. She thinks, oh no, now I'm really in trouble. And instead, that guard is holding a huge pile of bananas. He comes in, drops it on the floor, and leaves. She starts counting. It's like John in that story at the end of John with the, with the big catch of fish. She starts counting bananas, and there are 92 bananas on her floor now. And then she prays, Lord, forgive me. I couldn't trust you enough to get even one banana for me. And just look at them there, almost 100 she writes, in the quietness of my heart, he, God answered back, that is what I delight to do. The exceeding abundant beyond anything that you ask or think. And she writes, I knew in that moment that nothing is impossible for God. Now she rations out those bananas and that's what sustains her. That's what keeps her alive uh, during the remainder of her time um, in solitary confinement. Those bananas saved her life. Um, she ends up not being executed, but being released and sent back to her prison camp, which, horrible as it was, almost seemed like luxury compared to the conditions on death row. And that brings me to lesson number four, and it's simply this. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Uh, you know those words. That's, that's Proverbs 17 and verse 22, right? And Darling's life definitely proved the truth of those words. Through her trials, Darlene had an amazingly positive, cheerful attitude, right? Like she's just, she, invite, she invents these lighthearted nicknames for her cruel captors. She calls one of them the brain. She calls another one that's, that's really young. She calls him Sweet 17, right? She has these like, she just is making light of it. She's being cheerful, uh, she's able to laugh at her circumstances. At one point, the Japanese uh, gave all the women these fancy dresses to wear in, in the prison camp for some reason, and she's able to laugh at how ridiculous that is. At one point, they drop off a giant pile of shoes, 3,200 shoes, uh, random shoes, like not matching or anything, and the women have to like dig through them and find matchers and trade with each other to get a pair that fits. And she talks about how fun that was. And she participates in choirs in the evening after the work is done and competitions to keep people's spirits up. She was named leader of her barracks despite that she was one of the youngest women in the barracks because everyone recognized her faith and her positive attitude, her cheerful heart. Despite all the horrors and hardships described in the book, Darlene sometimes keeps up... So, somehow she's able to keep a light touch and a cheerful heart. And that's a reminder to all of us that a cheerful heart in the hardest of circumstances is good medicine. Which is not to say that Darlene doesn't ever grieve or cry or lament in the book. She does all those things. But through it all, by God's grace, she kept a cheerful heart. Eventually the war begins to wind down. The tide begins to turn in favor of the Allied uh, side and, and they, they, they watch planes having dogfights overhead uh, and they have to endure a series of bombings on the prison camp because the allied forces are just blanketing the area 
in bombs. And so, and maybe this is the last story I'll, I'll tell. There's a particularly pointed scene. It's towards the end of the book, right? When you, you just feel like, how can she possibly endure anything more? Do, Lord, just get her out of there. The, 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 she's, she's hiding in a trench. All the women are in a trench as the bombs are dropping onto the prisoner of war camp. And as she's, she's hiding in that trench, she remembers that she had borrowed a friend's Bible because hers was taken away. And she had left that Bible on her bunk in her barracks. And so she gets up out of the trench and she runs to the barracks, right? While the bombs are falling and she gets to the barracks and, the, and they're on fire because they've been hit by a bomb. Uh, and, the, and the bombs are dropping napalm, which is like that jelly gas that burns everywhere. So the, the barracks are burning. She runs in, grabs the Bible off her bed, runs back out. All the while, these planes are flying by, and with their, they're strafing the area with their machine gun bullets as well as dropping bombs. And she runs out of there, and she saves the Bible, but the barracks burn right to the ground. And once, once the bombing is over and the planes are gone, and they're kind of taking inventory and recognizing that the whole camp is wiped out. She, the, the, the barracks had totally burned down. She goes and sees that her final possession was her bride book. Um, I didn't know what that was, but it, apparently it's a lot of things related to her wedding, and one of the things in that bride book was her marriage certificate, and the, it caught on fire. The book caught on fire, and the flames kind of flicked through the pages and left it open to the marriage certificate, but it was just black ash but on it there was the gold writing on the certificate was still was still visible and she reached out to grab it and as she touched it it just disintegrated and fell apart and she says she cried out lord that was the only thing that i had left couldn't i have had that just that one thing my marriage certificate and she writes this gently so gently god answered me my child that is what I want to do with you. I want to make you like pure gold, even if I have to take you through the fire seven times. And she says, I felt God's arms lifting me up in that moment. She walks over to the spot in the trench where she was, where she had been um, crouching before she remembered the, the Bible and left, and she sees that there is the casing of a bomb that has exploded and that landed exactly in the spot where she had been hiding, where she had been crouching before the Lord reminded her, oh, you should go get that Bible. And so she prays, Lord, it wasn't really the Bible you were concerned about, was it? You knew that was a way to get me out of that ditch to save my life. Father, whatever's left of life to me, it's yours. It all belongs to you. Well, eventually the war ends. Darlene and the other prisoners are liberated. She's allowed to go home. Before she goes, she goes and visits Russell's grave, and she's able to speak with some of the men who knew him in the prison camp, and they tell her how he had touched their lives with the love of Christ, and then she goes home. She's not yet 30 years old. She's already a widow. She has no possessions left to her except her unshakable faith in God. Eventually, she ends up remarrying. Uh, she has two boys, uh, and the, her and her new husband and, and, and boys, they go back to the mission field. Uh, she goes first back to New Guinea to serve there again, and then, and then they go on to serve in the Australian outback. But those are stories for a different day. I pointed out four lessons 
Four lessons that blessed and challenged me as I read this book. Lesson one, God will never leave us or forsake us, and we can believe that no matter how we're feeling in any given moment. Number two, by loving our enemies, we are participating in building God's kingdom. Number three, God will always provide what we need when we need it. And number four, a cheerful heart is good medicine. I'll close, our, I'll close our time this morning with just one more, and it's this. It's in the very going forward that we meet God. It's in the very going forward that we meet God. I won't say everything. I'll just summarize what I was going to say. Is that the thing is, Darlene, Darlene went through so many hardships, right? But she also experienced so much blessing. And she wouldn't have experienced any of those things if she hadn't had the courage and faith to get up, follow the call, and go forward. And it's in the going forward that we meet God. And I heard Darlene interviewed, um, there's a, if you want to find it on YouTube, there's a beautiful, it's a four-hour interview with Darlene sharing her testimony. I think it's just called The Testimony of Darlene Deibler where four hours she tells her story, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing. And towards the end of it, she's an old woman by this point, towards the end of it, she says this, I thank God for every storm that crashed me onto the rocks of Jesus Christ. It's in the very going forward that we meet God. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for uh, lives well lived. Uh, We have many people in our own church family here Uh, that have lived faithful lives to your glory, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful, it's encouraging, it's inspiring. I thank you for good examples. And thank you for the life of Darlene Deibler, who is now home with you and has received her reward. And thank you for the faithfulness of her life and the example that it is to us. I know that she wouldn't want us celebrating her Uh, but she would want us celebrating her Savior. And so that is what we are doing this morning, Lord Jesus. We celebrate how you were glorified in her life. And I pray for us, sometimes we hear a story like that and we think, well, that was great for her, but that could never be me. Well, that's right, it couldn't, except uh, you're you. (laughs) And you are able to empower us to live lives like that. I absolutely believe that, and I invite that. I pray that you would empower us to walk in faithfulness, to go forward, believing that in the going forward, we meet you. In your name, amen.